This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Rum, do you hear something? Yeah, what is that? It's a bird. No, it's a plane. No, it's not that. It's the best of the buzz with Bill. Is that right, eh? It's a good sign of things to come. Commentary on trending headlines with veteran AMI producer Bill Shackleton. Well, now. Billy! I say Shack! Yep, I'm back. Now shortwave radio is refacing, actually, it's resurfacing as a tool in Ukraine coming from... I guess this is CTV News, a very interesting story about certain, now we all know shortwave radio, you know, it was used in the, well, one of the main reasons it was used for espionage purposes during World War II and the Cold War. And basically what you would have is they would use shortwave to to send secret coded messages to each other, um, the Russians and perhaps the U.S., one of the reasons why shortwave is so popular or was is that it you can it travels a long way you know what i mean like what they use morse code because you could it went miles and miles and miles. you didn't have to be you could be a long way from the um you know the receiver could be a long way from the recipient and it was it was a, you know a relatively cheap way of getting a message across now, when it comes to the Ukraine, it's interesting because with the Russians bombing all the cell towers and things like this, shortwave is a way that certainly, for instance, the BBC is broadcasting to the Ukraine using shortwave because it's very hard to jam a shortwave signal. Um it's very, you know, it's quite easy to ban a cell, to, to jam a cell frequency, but to ban a short wave is very difficult to do. Yeah. So what you're, what you're seeing in Ukraine is all these people using short wave radios to uh, receivers to get messages across to each other. And, um, you know, this old technology is, it works. It's simple and it works. Yeah. It, but the, with I think the way of it is it follows the curvature of, of the earth. Yeah, but you would that's still, right. If I remember my uh, radio phonetic, uh, phonetics, my radio uh, amateur radio course, I remember us discussing that because of the way it, they would go around versus uh, HF going up and, and down, right? Yeah, that's um, right. It doesn't go up and down. Right. Yeah. And the, a lot of the services that they had on shortwave, which we don't now, uh, you know, were amazing and people utilize them a lot, let alone having, I, I mean, I've heard in, you know, some of the times people had these sets of military people in their cars. But when it came to broadcasters, like what the BBC is doing, every broadcaster had some form of way of getting their material out there on shortwave, the BBC, and they would broadcast to different directions um, so that around the world you could listen to them. Did you have a favorite yeah. station back then, Bill, when when you were a kid and listened on shortwave? I, you know what I, I used to really like, you know, when they would, stations would play a tune uh, every 30 seconds so that you, oh, you could tone? be able to tune, yeah, a tone or tune yeah. in. Yeah. And I used to search for those. Um, but I was really kind of young when it came to shortwave. But now, you know, uh, like it was used and still being used as propaganda. Um, so certain, you know, certain radio stations are putting out this, all this, this news, right? 
which is why the BBC wants yeah, to broadcast right. so that people get the accurate uh, accurate stories. Uh, yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, very interesting that also, as much as it's not a complicated system, uh, it's a little, like you said, Bill, harder to jam or do anything to it. So I find that very, very interesting when um, when you brought this up. It's a really interesting way of getting in there where you'd think that there would be other methods. No, those those are blocked right off. Yeah, that's that's exactly. I used to have different shortwave radio sets when I was a kid. Oh, I know. Yeah, they were I fantastic. Had a couple. Oh, yeah. I had yeah. a couple of them. Used to listen a lot to the Voice of America, to the BBC. Yes, yes, yes. And one of the radio stations out of New Orleans, an FM radio station, used to broadcast um, on uh, on shortwave as well, which was really odd because <laughs> most stations did not. This is one Wenders, and I think his name is Wenders, he's German, makes a film about fancy restrooms in Japan, coming from Associated Press. As I say, leave it up to the Japanese. So, What have they done? Well, they've made a film about restrooms and toilets. Um, now, they are the, 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 the idea behind this film is that to dispel the myth that well that, that a washroom is graffitic and you know when you think about a washroom it conjures up dirt all kinds of things that go on that we don't want to talk about here so this guy has decided to and that that washrooms in fact can be a thing of beauty and in fact you that people people can go to of course sometimes you have to but how many times have you seen it? Oh, I don't want to go in there. So he's dispelling the myth that a washroom is a bad and a dirty place. So he has one of the characters of the film is a tan sanitation worker who is cleaning the toilets and cleaning the bathroom stalls. And they were going to make show this film at the Winter Olympics, but because of COVID, there was no fans, so they didn't they didn't do it. Um, the other point he's making is that washrooms are a, perf a perfect utopia, are they not? It doesn't matter whether you're of color, rich or poor. Everyone has to go into a washroom. Mm -hmm. So I think this is what all this is, is making a washroom a thing of beauty, and mm. which which it can be. Interesting. Interesting how yeah. that last point, how you know, I, I, you know the, the utopia angle or idea that he has of – well, it's a place where you, you use, and again, I'm I'm certainly sure that's not the case or hasn't been the case in parts of the world where you had designated washrooms for this person, that per, you know, that person re referring to color, let's say, um, and, and, and that where it wasn't such a, ple a pleasant, you know, place to, or, or when I say pleasant, I mean, where you felt secure to go in without getting mugged or something. And, and again, Bill, like you said, there are places where people just say, I'm not going to go use that public washroom or in subway systems, you know, a lot of time oh, they yeah. got away from having washrooms because they were crime ridden. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that's the thing is 
that they don't have to be. I mean, why? why I mean, why not clean them up and and make them where people? I mean, what happens if you're in a subway and you've got to use the facilities and there's well, we can't have that because of all the washrooms can be made to to look good and they can be made to function. And this is, I think, what this film is that it is, um, you know, it's sort of this a lot of these myths about washrooms. Um, are being sort of dispelled. In They're this being thing. dispelled and flushed. Yeah, I, I yeah, also think right. <laughs> that some of it, Billy, is not is it. You know, at first I thought, oh well, we're going to see all these high end restaurants with marble this and that in in the bathrooms. Uh, it doesn't sound like that. Even down to the cleanliness thing, having the fellow, the one character going around in it, it sounds like there's that, you know, hey, ladies and gentlemen, and those comparisons we like to make that. Well, you know, really, quite frankly, this is dirtier than oh. Oh really? And educating us. So interesting. Yeah, and they they said fancy washrooms, but I think the deal is that um if if the fancy washrooms can be made to look good, why can't others and, and this is I guess this is a promotional thing, I suppose. I, I would as think well. so too. If they yeah. were going yeah, to show that at the Olympics and that kind of, and I think you know, there's a people have to remember that there's a large part of the world where washrooms are not what we know here. Oh no. <laughs> no. Here we go with another one. World-renowned Michelin guide books a table in Toronto. Um, so Michelin, as you probably know, as we all know, coming from, and I wasn't able to find out where this came from. Um, so it is a the Michelin guide. Um, basically, they've done it with hotels all over the world, where you hotels are given a three-star rating depending on how good they are or not. Toronto is the first city in Canada where the actual Michelin food guide is going to be starting up. So what this is going to mean is that Michelin is, is, has inspectors that are going to be going around to restaurants and they're going to be checking cleanliness. They're going to be tasting food. They're going to be making sure the cooks and the servers are dressed properly, are doing their jobs and this sort of thing. There is, I have a, no, as the mayor uh, John Tory pointed out, and he's quite right, that the, the restaurant industry has been really hit by COVID-19. And the hope is that some of these restaurants that, that Michelin, that these people visit, are going to get an, an economic leg up. But here's a problem, is that what about the restaurants that are secluded in sort of places where nobody knows? And the concern is that I may have a restaurant. In Toronto? Yeah, yeah, it's in, in Toronto. In Toronto. I may have a restaurant, say, in a neighborhood that nobody knows anything about. Mm-hmm. And who, who, how are these people going to know where the restaurants are? And are they going to go to the fancy restaurants? And I, I just don't know that it's necessarily fair to have some restaurants being recognized in this guide and other ones it won't be because 
the people these people don't know where they are and i just don't i don't understand the fairness of that mm. you, you would think the people from Michelin would 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 kind of have that angle covered in the way of listings, especially in this day and age, where all sorts of places are. Because everyone has to advertise somewhere, regardless of what kind of budget you have. You may not be able to do anything huge or big, but I would like to think it's just you just don't want to see it tilted towards, yeah. well, you know, we've got to go to the higher end places or we've got to go to the or we've got to go first off to, to places that um, we know we get sponsorship dollars come from. Yeah, Um that was a that was a criticism that, that some restaurants. Uh, one pizza a lady that owned a pizza place said, "Well, no one knows. They probably won't come to me because I'm in Scarborough or I'm somewhere else or wherever." Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's a problem. They They're the places be. you really it's wish you could discover this way. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But, I mean, and the thing is, we can't have it both ways. And unfortunately, because we're so diverse and because yes. they're so many places, scenes, I don't even know what you want to call it, like even population density all over Toronto. Um, there's that suburban vibe and the the midtown, the upper end, the downtown, like all kinds of stuff, right? Um, all over Toronto. We're, we're going to have people who don't get seen. Um, but then there's maybe some of the hole-in-the-wall places. I don't know. Like, for example, you go on Blog.to, right, which is a very well-known um, blog vlog system in Toronto, they cover everything. They cover the really, really popular places, the really expensive places. I'm pretty sure if you type in Toronto hole in the wall, blog to yo, you'll find a post that they've done on that. So if this, um, what do we call it? The Michelin Michelin guide. Yeah. Guide. Yeah. If they wanted to get Toronto in all of its forms, then maybe they will visit all the little places. Well, and you know what's become so big when you watch these shows, these food shows and stuff like that, that's the small unheard of gems that they really zero in on. That's what I mean. Have made places so Scarborough's known for many of those. Yeah. You can't even sit. You just go in, you get your stuff, it's packed as hell and you get out. But it's got the best food. Walk in and you back out. Yeah. Um, The other concern is that our you know, if if you if are you putting unnecessary pressure on the staff to to work harder than if 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 the if the Michigan people might come? So, are you going to be taking advantage of staff um, because you want your restaurant to get a good rating? You know what I mean? Because I guess you don't. You don't want to do it that in. way. No. Yeah. yeah, and you don't want to do it that way. But you do no, want to no. be. You do want to be running business properly, right? Like the inspections are not just about the food. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. You want to be clean. You want to have quality food. You want to have consistency. Like the things mentioned in these articles, you want that regardless of the Michelin people coming in or not. Yeah. I'm just saying as a serious foodie. a grad degree to compete right now probably not so this is america us coming from the associated press so the 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 idea well the the author is suggesting that people with a graduate degree 
you you don't necessarily need one to compete. Apparently, employers in the U.S. are because of the tight market. They're pretty. They're 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 foregoing. They need these positions filled, and they are hiring people that don't have a graduate degree. Not that it is important, but, but I think it, it it is. But the question, the flip side of this, is that the market, when if it changes, that's going is it going to mean that the, you know when there's a glut of employees looking, then employers are going to be more perhaps more picky and choosy about who they hire. And, you know, the students um, are going to have to be perhaps more aware of fields that may not need a degree so that you don't end up getting a degree and not being able to get a job and go, getting into debt. And m- yeah. my take in this whole thing is you, 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 there's nothing wrong with getting a degree. It can't do you any harm. And you never know how the market's going to turn. Well, I think the balance uh, game that people have been playing lately, and I'm talking about people even just three, four years younger than me, right? So in their mid-20s, early 20s now, um, the the balancing act that people are trying to achieve is, do I need to spend four years getting a degree, acquiring all this debt, and then potentially upgrading, right, like to a master's and beyond, in order to get the work that I need? or that I want to do in order to be in the field? Or can I just simply go from the entrance level up, entry level up? And um, you'd be surprised how many people are prioritizing making money over being at school. It is really interesting to me because when I was growing up and my mom, like her generation, it was just no questions asked. If you had access to education, you did it, period. Uh, you, You went to school and, you know, if you acquire debt, like, at least the government's giving you money in order to go to school. Uh, but now that the conversations have shifted a lot and a lot more people are saying, is it necessary for me to school? Like the fact that that question is even being asked. Uh, and we we saw, you know, the split between university and college or like being able to do trades jobs and going to trade school, specialized school, that kind of thing happened more and more as I, I got into post-secondary. But now even a couple of years later, um, the conversations have have shifted so much. Well, yeah, and I remember, I mean, certainly in my generation, you went to school. You There was no way. I mean, right. you, 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 you got a job. Will. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and you're right. It was the only way to get certain jobs yeah, is to have that's a degree. Right. And yeah. it did cut the difference between someone who had and did not if there was a close. Because unfortunately, yeah, we, we can all say, hey, Absolutely. that person really knows the job. I'd like to bring them on board. Well, but they don't have the educational background. And we worry about what would be said, man. And I... I get it. Somebody goes to school, spends the money. But in a time of the pandemic and the urgency of finding employment and, fi- and lots of people have taken the time to retrain for other things, um, I can see the desperate, the desperate circumstance many businesses are in. South Koreans dread actually bringing back dinners 
Now, oh. this is an interesting story. Um, apparently in Korea, South Koreans are dreading the, you know, bringing back of work dinners, related dinners. And apparently what they're saying, this is this coming from Reuters. Young people are saying, we don't want to, we don't want that. We don't want to, we want our space. Apparently there's a, a there's a custom in South Korea where companies hold dinners and they hold long um, drinking sessions and they go to retreats and they hike and they, of course, this is because of the, uh, you know, the, the, re- the, the lifting of pandemic restrictions. And it got me thinking when I read this, um, how has the, or, or, or has the pandemic changed the way we in North America are going to view the, of, of you know, dinners and, 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 and work activities i know a lot of people don't uh, they don't like them because everybody laughs on cue and everybody's uncomfortable and everybody's looking at each other and and, and i can and, and that's why I, th- I believe the koreans or south koreans are you know they're, they're they like the the fact that they can work from home and they have their own space it's funny because so many people before the pandemic, if you talked about a work function, let's say, oh, you got to be doing it. Oh, really? I don't want to go to that. Even though, you know, company might have been paying for it. We almost became in a position of taking it for granted to where it became annoying. Or what are they doing trying to interfere with my off hours? My goodness, how dare they? And and now when you look at something like this and, and them company, the company's knowing, how are we going to get people to do these things or feel that, hey, come out of the house, we're having a work function. I work from home now, you know, 80% of the time I'm not doing that. Is it going to be harder? Or, Bill, and we've been surprised with the pandemic, made it, may it be easier? May people totally say, yeah, man, I'm ready to come out. Why, why don't we get together? When are we meeting? And maybe that'll be more than one or two times out of the gate. Maybe it will be something that companies, if they organize and hit the button at the right time, they can do three times a year or something like that for meetings and special events, Rum? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just really key to focus on what people are nervous about, right? What it is and why it is. And sometimes it's just the time. Um, or, or it takes time, I guess, to to get people back into the, quote, old way of doing things. Well, when you um, establish something, do you want to give back? If you're used to doing what you do with your dog, with your evenings, with your day, the nap that you may say, oh, you know, I take this nap now instead of I don't get an afternoon nap because I'm working. But at 4.30 in the afternoon before I have dinner, I lay down for a half hour and I love it. Wow, we need you to come out to a work function. No, it's in the way of my yeah. nap. Sorry. Yeah. No, yeah, because so many of the challenges I guess we're having now with you know return to work return to work functions whatever you want to add in here um is that we've it's been two years like people's lifestyles have literally changed right it, we're not just holding on until the next uh, going back to normal phase we've literally actually changed the way we live our every day yeah. you know and that could be from how you spend your evenings to what time you wake up to you know how you're eating are you cooking during the day are you not A new cooking normal. during the day uh, it's a total new normal. And so when when demands come back or conversations or the lighter way of doing it, come back about how to go back to certain things, socializing, work functions, whatever, honestly, people will have strong opinions. We do. <laughs> like, yeah. Things have changed a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I don't know. I, go ahead, Bill. No, I, I mean, it's employers have to maybe take it slow and maybe – 
they don't maybe they can plan activities and but not as many because I don't think people are going to put up with it. Um, I I think and again I we talk a lot about our our feeling our mental health when it comes to these things but I think you're right on the really take things slow because the reality is we were so not excited but you know because there's a pandemic going on but embracing of work from home being safe but also it was such a difference a new thing that people had been working at for a number of years well can we work a couple of days from home or what's that work and we were working on it getting and then suddenly forced into it i have to wonder how long before we the novelty wears off and i was saying this before the pandemic of you know working from home uh, you know i did it for 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 longer than you guys and when does the novelty wear off when do people stop thinking i hey, you sitting at home watching tv when he you know because you get tired of it and if you don't like anything that's on during the daytime well you're not watching tv are you walking or whatever so i think sometimes when it was something we weren't doing we overrated it. It was something we wanted to do. Once you're doing it, oh, okay, it becomes old hat. So when does this wear off? Yeah, I don't know. Um, or does it? <laughs> that or, yeah, it all yeah. Well, as per usual, when we have these conversations, we really see like you know the the difference or the general um, consensus between younger people and people who are have been in the workforce forever, right? Where you didn't know anything but in person or you didn't know anything but these kind of like gatherings and socializing and being able to walk and talk and converse uh in your workday it's so different now you start wondering how much is it like especially for people who as you say rum maybe they've left college started working this is all they know and i try to think about when people you know when when people tell you about something remember when you know what we used to do what really I wonder what that would have been like. And and you start as we've gotten, and I know it's only two and a half years, but humans are funny with our memory, right? It, once you start oh, yeah. and, and, and have that muscle memory of this is new, this is the way it is now, this is the new normal. Mm-hmm. What was the old once way Once we like? let go of the resistance, right? Yeah. And we yeah. almost seem to forget, well, that wasn't, that was only two and a half years ago. Was it? It seems longer than that. So I, I don't know, Bill. I think it's, it is going to be that slower. I think you're right. I think it's going to be weighted out employers. But then by that time, how many employers have given up the space, have, have diverted their way of doing things? That's the thing. These things have things. been happening too. Yeah. Oh, let's go yeah. back to work. We all want to go back to the office. Well, okay, guys, there's an outdoor patio. Uh, we can sit out there and you can put your <laughs> machines there for now. Basically, an, an, an American um, tourist, two, I, I guess two American tourists, brought in a um, unexploded, and this is a key, unexploded shell to Bulgarian Airport in Israel. Apparently, what happened was they found it in the Golden Heights. Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> the Golden Heights. Can you imagine bringing a <laughs> unexploded shell? The thing could have gone off. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. like good grief. Just, yeah. You know, so anyway, you got you got to be a little careful with your souvenirs, right? Yeah, do you mind yeah. if I bring this plastique into onto the plane? Yeah. Oh my goodness. I mean, wow. we've and, heard. 
booze you people bring booze in uh, toys whatever but i'm i wonder if they knew that the sh- that it had been unexploded i and mean it was live oh yeah man. it was actually a live show and it caused trouble people ran <laughs> a couple people stampeded and there were a couple oh, no. people hurt yeah, yeah man, really. I, I, guess so. I wonder if anybody was arrested i mean i've been to ben gurion airport and it has such high security you go through oh, yeah. security like 10 times practically before you get on your plane. Just when you think you're ready to get on your plane, you go through security again. I can just imagine what people thought. Wow. Did they, did they get charged, Bill? Or anything? Well, I, the article didn't say. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure they realized the people really didn't know any better. And if anything, they thanks. Okay, you can't have this. We've got to go sweep that neighborhood, that area. Like, like, like that's Gosh. crazy. Thanks, Billy. Bill Shackleton is a usual suspect on our show, Kelly and Company. You can catch Billy sneaking around the studio on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern on AMI-audio. And be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for more of The Buzz. All right, see ya.